Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gun violence, kidnapping, sexual assault of children, child pornography, rape, and forced prostitution. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Today, dear listener, we're delving into the world of Candy Barr, who's sometimes credited as being the world's first porn star. It sounds like a titillating story, right? But unfortunately, like so many tales from the early part of the 20th century, it's one tinged with misogyny and hypocrisy. The modern adult entertainment industry is dominated by do-it-yourself innovators who use sites like OnlyFans to make their living. But in Candy's day, the world was much less open-minded about sex, particularly where women were concerned. She was made a pariah, simultaneously an object of lust and scorn. And you want to know what's worse than that? Candy never wanted to be thought of as a porn star. The truth was she just longed for the freedom to live her own life. The twisted irony is that to earn that right, she had to go to jail. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Today, we'll meet Juanita Slusher as she grows up in Texas in the 1930s, seemingly moving from one traumatic experience to the next until she finally made her mark as Candy Barr. But though the world saw her as one thing, this woman was anything but simple. All that and more coming up. Stay with us. With a title like The First Porn Star, you'd think that the story of Miss Candy Barr would be incredibly well-documented. Surely someone would have traced her roots in meticulous detail to pinpoint each turning point, each decision that led to her scandalous career. But that's not really the case when it comes to Candy. There are a few accounts of her life, written by men, but even they feel incomplete. And that's because for so long, the only one who was tracking the movements of Candy Barr was Candy herself. So when the time came to put it all down on paper, she had to comb back through her mind, sort through the pieces, and do her best with what she found. But memory can be a slippery thing. Looking back on your own childhood, you'd probably find that events bleed together and details blur around the edges. All that to say that it's hard to know what parts of this story are indisputably true and which moments veer closer to exaggeration. With that in mind, I think the best way to think about Candy is as one of those relatives who pour themselves a drink while saying something like, Did I ever tell you about the time when I danced at the Moulin Rouge? There's undoubtedly a real story there, and probably some hyperbole, too. But what's really important is the emotion behind the tale. So keep your finger on that pulse for this episode as we ride the wave with Candy Barr. Which, by the way, wasn't her real name. (laughs) 
She was born Juanita Dale Slusher in the summer of 1935, and although her parents weren't particularly well off, little Juanita was pretty happy for a while, especially when she was dancing. Her parents used to bring her to the pavilion, a dance hall in the small town of Edna, Texas. There, as the music whirled around them, Doc Slusher put his youngest daughter on his shoes and spun her around the room. Juanita giggled with delight every time, loving the way her body moved with the beat, how fluid it felt when she surrendered to the band's spell. But the memories of dancing with her dad were a bright spot in an otherwise troubling childhood. According to Juanita, she was first sexually assaulted when she was just four years old. That was when an 18-year-old neighbor came by to take her out to play. But instead of innocent fun, the teen pulled down Juanita's pants and performed oral sex on her. Later, she recalled that it felt strange, but probably because she was four, she didn't strictly realize it was wrong. Unfortunately, that was just the tip of the iceberg, because the teenager wasn't the only one who took advantage of the Slusher family or Juanita. But before we go any further with the psychology for this episode, I want to remind you that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And one of the ideas we looked at was the re-victimization of child sexual abuse survivors. It's well documented that traumatic sexual experiences like child sexual abuse or CSA and rape are associated with numerous acute and chronic psychological difficulties, including PTSD, depression, suicidality and self-harm behaviors, anxiety, substance abuse, dissociation, interpersonal difficulties, low self-esteem and feelings of guilt and self-blame. Likewise, it's also been shown that CSA survivors are more likely to experience sexual violence later in their lives. With that in mind, what happened next might not be such a surprise. Even with her husband providing for the family, Juanita's mother, Sadie, worked long hours doing laundry for locals just to help make ends barely meet. So when another neighbor, a man in his 40s, offered to watch eight-year-old Juanita for her, it must have been a welcome relief. But of course, this creep was no good Samaritan. He wanted Juanita for a very specific, very perverse reason. He hosted poker games with a few buddies, and young Juanita was there as the prize. He'd put her in a dress, smear makeup on her tiny face, and sit her in the middle of the table. There, she'd wait obediently until the game was over, and the guy with the most chips claimed her. What they did with or to the little girl is anyone's guess, and between you and me, I'd rather not. It seems like the neighbor escaped any kind of punishment. Juanita didn't tell anyone about the abuse at the time, partly because, if nothing else, her parents thought the guy was a saint for helping look after their daughter. She didn't know how to shatter that illusion. But the thing was, Doc and Sadie's whole marriage was kind of built on illusions. Doc was a handsome guy, and many women in Edna did their best to curry his favor, if you know what I mean. Among other things, he was a handyman, which afforded him plenty of opportunities to, uh, sample the local delights. At least, until he went away to war in the early 40s. That's when young Juanita's already rocky life really went downhill. 
1944, Sadie was in a car crash that left her with a concussion, but because she didn't have any money, the hospital refused to actually treat her, and she died on a gurney. When Doc Slusher got home, it was to a bill from the hospital to replace the bed. Because America. However, he took it in stride and wasted no time remarrying. His new wife, Edda, moved in with the Slushers in June of 1944. Unfortunately for Juanita, Edda was a stepmother cut from fairy tale cloth. She made the nine-year-old do the lion's share of the chores, which left no time to go to school. And it didn't stop there. According to Juanita, Edda liked to play a strange game with her. She'd hand her stepdaughter a lifesaver candy and tell the girl to use her mouth to place it onto Edda's own tongue. A job well done earned Juanita a piece of candy for herself. It was, in a word, weird. You want more words for it? Gross, upsetting, abusive. Ew. And by 13, Juanita was done. She'd saved a little money by shucking corn and delivering milk for local farms and was ready to head out in the world. She didn't have much, but figured anything was better than staying under the same roof as Etta. Instead, she went to live with her aunt and uncle in Paris, Texas, over 300 miles away. Her older sister, Kay, already lived there, so you might think that there was someone who'd look out for Juanita, and that's kind of what happened, but not in a way even resembling good. See, as she got older, Juanita started turning heads. Even as a preteen, people were apparently paying attention to her cherub-like face and developing figure. When she arrived in Paris, she befriended a local boy at a church who pressured her to have sex at 13. Well, Juanita didn't feel like she was ready for that and went to Kay for advice. And what did Big Sis do? She explained that it really was time she was with a man, so she took Juanita to stand by a busy road and wave at passing drivers. When a man pulled over, Kay said he could have sex with Juanita for a dollar. Then she sat protectively in the front seat while the man and her sister completed the transaction in the back. Once again, someone who was supposed to protect Juanita had taken advantage of her instead. But at the time, she didn't necessarily see it that way. She just knew she didn't like her new life in Paris, so she hit the road. She planned to hitchhike to Dallas and was delighted when a driver offered her a ride. But he turned out to be a monster who got a motel room just so he could rape her. Unfortunately, Juanita didn't know what to do after that except carry on. She eventually made it to Dallas and got to work setting up a new life for herself. By that stage, she was 14, and according to all reports, her figure was simply irresistible. Her waist was tiny, her breasts were not, and her face was childlike enough to make her look innocent and sweet. To be clear, this is the way that men have written about Juanita for decades. It's gross, but the unfortunate fact is that her looks play a central role in her story. They're about the only thing anyone ever seemed to believe she had to offer. They were undoubtedly what helped her find paying gigs, even at her young age. For a while, she was cleaning rooms at a Dallas motel, then worked as a server at the drive-in. It wasn't glamorous, but it made the teen enough to pay rent, then to take herself out dancing on her nights off. Because despite the years of trauma and abuse, 
Juanita still loved to dance. Mostly, she went to a little place called the Singapore Club, which had strict rules about customer behavior. She was safe there and could spend hours losing herself to the music. Over the next couple of years, the dance floor was her happy place. No matter what she had to put up with in her personal life, abusive older men, manipulative relationships, it all faded away when the band started up. And according to all reports, when Candy was dancing, everyone wanted to stop and watch. She was that good. At least, that's what she thought. But her rhythm wasn't the only thing that drew people's eyes. Because remember how precocious Candy's body was? Well, it looked its best when she really got going. So even though she was young enough to still be in high school, she always drew a crowd. Unfortunately, not everyone was satisfied with just looking. At least one creep decided that Juanita should be his. And not just in the toxically masculine, she should be my girlfriend way. No, Troy Phillips was a pimp and a violent one at that. He was the kind of guy who liked to abduct vulnerable young women and teen girls and force them into prostitution. And after watching the way she turned heads at the Singapore club, he wanted Juanita for his roster. In a moment, a Texan teenager takes the United States by storm. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series, Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, a star is born. It was the early 1950s. It was Dallas, Texas. She was a teenager living on her own. That's how it happened. That's how Troy Phillips got his hands on Juanita Slusher. One night when she was walking home from work, the seasoned pimp snatched her off the street before she even knew what was happening. He spirited her away to a boarding house. There, he stripped her naked, locked her in a bedroom, and the nightmare began. Looking back later, Juanita didn't remember much of what happened, only that Troy spent the next three or four days sexually assaulting and raping her. He wanted to break her, to prepare her to be one of his prized girls. After that, her new life started. It's a sad fact that Juanita's story has so many different layers of tragedy that this wasn't even close to the first time she'd been sexually assaulted, that it could happen again, that as a teenage girl, she was forced into prostitution, that no one even noticed she was gone. Hearing about it all, you might be surprised that she survived, that she could even endure her existence. But if nothing else, Juanita was resilient. 
though to be fair, she might not have had the best instincts. For example, she managed to escape her brothel prison at least twice, but instead of hiding out or fleeing the city, she simply went dancing. Like, right away. So she wasn't hard for her captors to find and drag back. Eventually, they resorted to tying her up, which finally drove it home. Her life wasn't her own anymore. It was theirs. Troy's, yes, but also the Johns. Of those, there were in the region of four to five hundred a month. The dates themselves were usually pretty quick, which didn't lessen the trauma of Juanita's situation in any way. It just meant she could bring in more money. Most, if not all, of that cash went right to Troy, who generously paid for his girl's clothes, food, and rent in a house he owned. A real gentleman, right? Well, hold on to your butts, because we're not even close to being done. In fact, here's where the porn comes in. Back then, adult films were usually shot on 8mm. Then people bought a handheld projector to watch in the privacy of their home. So despite its sophistication being, well, less, it's clear that the industry wasn't that dissimilar from the porn machine you might know today. What's less clear is exactly how Juanita got involved with the movie that made her famous. Over the years, there have been conflicting accounts of how it went down, including from Juanita herself. That makes it almost impossible to know what the truth is. One version holds that a John hired Juanita for a date, liked the look of her, and forced her to make the film. Another was that the teen went to an address a friend gave her where a man looked her over and offered her several $10 bills to appear in a quote-unquote risque film. Most recently, Juanita claimed that she didn't remember what happened, but suspected that maybe she was drugged and brought to the motel where the film was made. As for the plot of the film, which was called Smart Alec, it wasn't high art. There was a man who played a traveling salesman. His character sees 15-year-old Juanita swimming in the motel pool and invites her to his room. They get down to business and are eventually joined by a second young woman or teenage girl who helps Juanita satisfy the salesman. The film ran for less than 20 minutes, but it was absolutely revolutionary. Because for all its simplicity, Smart Alec was one of the first widely distributed blue films in the U.S. And whatever the truth behind its star's involvement, the film featured a beautiful young woman who looked like she was actually enjoying sex. Which, okay, seems like a pretty low bar to clear, right? But the thing is, the 1950s were a precarious time for men in the U.S. Not only did they have to marry young, get a good job, buy a big house, and produce plenty of offspring, they also had to satisfy their wife. And that was particularly difficult, because many women were simply, to use the parlance of the day, frigid, which was a failure to achieve orgasm when having sex with her husband. Now things have moved forward somewhat. But back then, the female anatomy and a woman's sexual pleasure was basically a knowledge black hole. So experts filled in the blanks with basic misogyny and problematic guesswork. According to the prevailing thinking, a woman's frigidity was to blame for the breakdown of marriages left, right, and center. These women could enjoy sex and experience orgasms, just not with their husbands, apparently. 
And that, many experts insisted, was all her fault, as were the frustrations of their husbands, who failed to please them. To be clear, it wasn't, but, you know, it was the 1950s. So if you think about all of the quote-unquote stress that men faced back then, it makes sense that they'd enjoy the total fantasy of a woman who actually liked having sex with her partner. Apparently, it was something so many of them would never achieve themselves. Instead, they watched Smart Alec and got their jollies to the image of sex with a 15-year-old girl. Of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the idea of pornography. It's a very healthy form of sexual expression. But there's a lot wrong with how Juanita came to be involved in this seminal film. No pun intended. Still, the film's audiences couldn't possibly know the truth behind Smart Alec. They just enjoyed what they were watching. And it was being watched everywhere. College frat houses, adult cinemas, men's clubs. Needless to say, it made money, uh, hand over fist. <laughs> there are estimates that the film netted over a million dollars, which in the early 1950s was a hell of a lot of money. And Juanita's pimp, Troy, milked that for all it was worth. He made sure Johns knew that the film's leading lady was on his books. Men's groups, wealthy business associations, and local fraternities all clamored to have the star at their parties and paid handsomely for the privilege. The starting fee was $500 for an evening, and that was just for her to be there. If you wanted her to perform any services, that was extra. Because if there's one group of people who know how to upsell, it's lecherous pimps. Although by this stage, Troy wasn't just Juanita's pimp, he was also her husband. It's unclear exactly when the pair tied the knot, but at some point he dressed the teen up in a strappy black dress and heels and took her before a justice of the peace. No one could have possibly called it a romantic ceremony, but I doubt Troy Phillips was ever motivated by love. Jealousy and control were his North Stars, and the marriage was all about that. As she got older, Juanita had started taking charge in a way she hadn't before. She went out dancing in her downtime, pulling away from her life of forced prostitution. That's how she caught the eye of Barney and May Weinstein. The pair noticed her dancing at their bar, the South Dallas Theater Club. They also noticed that men stuck around the club longer whenever Juanita was there. Like, always. People loved to watch her dance. Eventually, the club approached Juanita to offer her a job stripping at the club. It wouldn't be a full-time gig, but she'd be paid to dance, which was a dream come true. She didn't care about taking her clothes off in front of people. She just wanted to perform. And like just about every other part of her life, Juanita's looks helped make her very popular in this new venture. But backstage, she thought that some of the other girls who worked at the club might be jealous of her, and she didn't like the way they spoke to her. After a lifetime enduring all kinds of abuse, Juanita decided she wasn't going to put up with it from other women. One night, she hit another dancer, knocking her to the ground. After that, Barney Weinstein figured that Juanita was more trouble than she was worth and suggested she go work at the club of his brother, Abe. And with the change in scenery came a change in name. Because if there's one thing everyone knows, it's that you can't take your clothes off for people using your real name. At least, not in the 1950s. 
Now, a lot of people take credit for coming up with Juanita's stage name, but what seems pretty consistent is what inspired it, her love of chocolate. All she ever wanted when she got off the stage was some kind of candy bar, Snickers, millionaires, so long as it was sweet. And regardless of who suggested it first, the name stuck. Juanita Slusher, the teenage runaway, became Candy Bar, the enchanting exotic dancer. However, it feels important to point out that Juanita never really loved her new name. To her, it felt more like an unavoidable part of her story that she never got away from. The thing was, though, Candy was the name she was known for for pretty much the rest of her life. So for the sake of clarity, that's what I'll call her from here on out. What was nice about this side gig was that it came with a lot more autonomy. Instead of her money coming from John's, it came from performing. Abe happily paid Candy $85 each night, even when she didn't quite know how to do the job properly. In those days, a woman who stripped would take the stage and be up there for exactly three songs, no more, no less. By the end of her performance, she'd be down to her pasties, which the crowd always greatly appreciated, but not Candy Bar. She was there to dance, remember? She'd go out there and tell the band to just keep playing until she got tired. Her improvised routines sometimes lasted 45 minutes, at the end of which the audience was worked into a frenzy. Naively, Candy thought they were just going crazy for her dance moves. She didn't realize they were more interested in her D-cups. But that was Candy to a T. She seemed to totally separate the two versions of herself. Looking back later, she explained it like this. Juanita Slusher was a prostitute. Juanita Phillips was a prostitute. Those Juanitas probably turned 4,000 tricks a year. But Candy Barr was a dancer, an entertainer, a star. Candy Barr was the very essence of myself. And she was a star. Dallas wasn't a particularly big town back then, and it seemed like everyone had heard about Candy. And those that hadn't were about to. You see, her new job appears to have given Candy the strength she needed to finally pull away from Troy, her abductor, abuser, waste of a husband. Or at least it gave her the funds to finally reclaim her life. With the money she made dancing, she got her own apartment and filed for divorce. Unsurprisingly, though, he was still obsessed with her. He showed up at the club where she worked, followed her home at night, and sometimes hit her. Then, on January 27, 1955, things came to a head. That night, 22-year-old Candy was home alone when she spotted Troy lurking outside her building. Knowing how volatile her former pimp was, she wanted to protect herself. She was done being abused, but she didn't have any weapons in the house. Luckily, she knew a guy who had a 22 rifle. She picked up the phone and told him to bring his gun. Well, after there was a gun on the scene, it was almost inevitable that someone ended up shot. In this case, it was Troy, who tried to break down Candy's door a little later. She missed any vital organs, but stopped him in his tracks. Then she ended the night in handcuffs. Initially, her bail was set at $5,000, but when Abe Weinstein heard what happened, he started rewriting the narrative. He saw the incident as a publicity stunt waiting to happen, so he called the local sheriff and talked him into increasing Candy's bail to $100,000. 
Then he rushed to the jail to pay the amount in full and get her out from behind bars. Conveniently, he had an outfit change for his best dancer. He dressed her up in a cowgirl getup complete with hat and two toy pistols. From there, he whisked her to a press conference where he decried the outrageous amount the authorities had set for Candy's bail, given that she had only acted in self-defense. That, as much as her enviable figure, is what helped propel Candy Barr to unexpected stardom, the gun-toting stripper cowgirl who shot her ex-husband. Predictably, the local press ate the story up, and people poured into Abe's club to see Candy strut her stuff. Her pay reportedly increased to $1,000 a week, and she started posing for lingerie catalogs and racy calendars. As for the law, Troy refused to press charges. Despite his proclivity for putting himself first, he freely admitted that he'd been in the wrong the night in question, so Candy was in the clear. Except that she wasn't, not really, because this is where the criminal part of her story comes in. Depending on who you ask, what came next was either a targeted sting that hit its mark or a vast conspiracy to bring Candy Barr down. Whatever the truth, one fact is indisputable. It changed her life forever. In a moment, Candy tangos with the law and gets in bed with a mobster. Now, Candy's final act. Juanita Slusher, a.k.a. Candy Barr, was finally free to live her life however she wanted. Except being a famous stripper in mid-1950s Dallas came with its own set of challenges. Sure, she was well-paid, and yes, it seemed like everyone knew her name, but that high profile just made her a target. In their book about Candy, Ted Schwartz and Marty Rustam suggest that what came next was a whole conspiracy against her, orchestrated by powerful men who'd had sex with the famous dancer when she was still underage. They apparently wanted to silence and discredit her, in case she ever decided to go public with the names of the men who'd taken advantage of her. How much truth there is to that theory, I can't really say. But in 1957, there was a sting. It went like this. On October 26th, a fellow dancer asked 22-year-old Candy to hold a small amount of cannabis for her. The other woman didn't want to take the tin home with her, but would return to collect it later. Being a kind-hearted sort of person, Candy agreed. It should have been a simple favor, but nothing in her life had ever been simple. The next evening, there was a knock at her apartment door. It was a trio of police officers who presented her with a search warrant. Somehow they knew she had cannabis in the home and were determined to find it. It didn't take them long. They found the measly stash, which she'd tucked into her bra for safekeeping, and arrested her on the spot. Suddenly, the young dancer was back in the headlines, back behind bars, if only temporarily. And just like last time, there were men eager to capitalize on her newfound notoriety. Per the terms of her bail, she wasn't allowed to perform in her hometown. But there were plenty of other opportunities. A talent manager flew her to Los Angeles, where she signed a contract with a supper club in the San Fernando Valley. After that, she struck a deal with the Largo Club on the Sunset Strip. It was great money, and the word of mouth was even better. Dallas must have seemed like such a small town in comparison to her new world, especially when it came to her social circle. 
Now, the exact details are fuzzy, but it seems like Candy spent time with several high-profile men during her few months in L.A. There was Vince Edwards, son of Bing Crosby. She also apparently caught the eye of Frank Sinatra, though she wasn't interested in his advances. And then there was Sammy Davis Jr. The two became close friends to the extent that he'd sometimes take the stage with her and play the bongos while she danced. But the bright lights of the West Coast couldn't hide Candy from the law. In early 1958, the 22-year-old returned to Dallas to face court over the drug charges. And if her life in L.A. had been a celebrity-filled whirlwind, then her trial was an absolute circus. The judge allegedly brought a camera into the courtroom and pulled Candy into his chambers for a private photo shoot. Pretty unprofessional, right? But hardly surprising given the time period and Candy's reputation. In 2016, doctors Paul Wright and Robert Tokunaga published research on how exposure to media that objectified women correlated with increased notions of women as sex objects. It seems that because she worked in the adult entertainment industry, this judge felt entitled to objectify her, even in an official setting, like his own courtroom. Given that, you can probably imagine how well the trial went. The prosecution's evidence was flimsy, and the search warrant seemed suspect at best, illegal at worst. Emotion was the strongest weapon in that courtroom, and morality. The prosecutor told the jurors, she may be cute, but under the evidence, she's soiled and dirty. Gross, right? But if you believe that there was a conspiracy against her, that people wanted to punish Candy for the implicit power she wielded, then they got their wish. After a few days, the jury declared her guilty of illegally possessing narcotics and sentenced her to 15 years behind bars. While she waited for her appeal to be heard, Candy was allowed to walk free on a $15,000 bond. And like before, she headed west to keep working, splitting her time between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Despite her conviction, she was earning more than she ever had in Dallas, $2,000 a week. She drove a Cadillac and moved into the Garden of Allah Hotel on the Sunset Strip. With her fancy car and hotel living, it seemed almost inevitable that she'd get a mobster boyfriend to complete the picture. According to Candy, Mickey Cohen was as controlling as he was notorious and tried to stop her from returning to Texas once her appeals were all exhausted. But that wasn't her. It was time to face the music. In January of 1959, she headed to the Gory State Farm for women in Huntsville, ready to begin her decade and a half behind bars. Before she arrived, however, she made sure she was prepared. She packed four suitcases with what she guessed was 15 years worth of bras, soft underwear, cold cream, cosmetics, and comfortable clothes. When she pulled up to the gates, there was a crowd waiting for her, and they watched as she walked towards the imposing building. Still a showgirl, she gamely told them all, I always wanted a brick house of my own, and it looks like I'm going to have one. And despite this winning attitude, she wasn't allowed to bring in her essentials. No matter what the 23-year-old seemed to think, this was no country club. Still, it wasn't a maximum security nightmare either. She took classes and spent time in the library where she discovered a love for the poetry of Emily Dickinson. 
But though her life was much quieter than before, her star still shone bright. In 1960, prison officials asked Candy to perform at the annual Texas Prison Rodeo. Of course, she wouldn't be stripping, but dancing wasn't her only talent. Apparently, she had a decent singing voice and liked to perform with the prison choir, the Gory Girls. That October, she brought the house down with her performance of Fever. Newspaper reports about the rodeo led with her appearance, relegating the supposed stars of the day, the rodeo cowboys, to an afterthought. For someone else, it might have given them a sizable ego boost to know they were still a certified star, but not Candy. She kept her head down, taught her fellow inmates to read, and earned the status of honored prisoner. Eventually, her diligence paid dividends. In March of 1963, the Texas governor ordered her release. She'd spent just over three years behind bars when she was paroled. Unfortunately, she wasn't quite free. The parole board imposed strict conditions upon her release. For starters, she was ordered to return to Edna, where her father and stepmother still lived. Technically, she was permitted to perform as a stripper, but there were no clubs in or around her hometown, which she wasn't allowed to leave. And in case any opened up, she wasn't allowed to perform in any venue that served alcohol. Basically, the harsh parole terms meant that Candy had no way to support herself after she left prison. Still, she got by as best she could. A friend gifted her a pair of dachshunds so she could breed them. As far as I can tell, that's the only way she made money for the next few years, until the governor officially pardoned her in 1967. That meant she was finally free, really free. She could return to Vegas, to LA, to meet obligations on contracts she had with clubs there. But it had been years since she'd danced, since she'd set places on fire with her improvisational style. Clubs didn't use live musicians for dancers anymore, forcing her to rely on pre-recorded music for her act. It restricted her, clipped her wings. In short, the world wasn't the same one she'd left. And although some audiences remembered Candy from her heyday, it seems that club owners weren't interested in taking a chance on her. So after she completed her contracts, she left the West Coast for good, returning to Texas to settle down. For a while, she seemed content to live a smaller life, caring for her aging father in Brownwood. She joined a prayer group, worked odd jobs when she could find them, and enjoyed the quiet. There was another cannabis charge in 1969, but it was thrown out because the police illegally entered her home to search for the drug. Aside from that, things were fairly steady for Candy, though it seems money was always pretty tight and she struggled to make ends meet. So in 1975, the 41-year-old posed nude for We Magazine. They paid her $5,000 for the photo shoot and accompanying interview, which briefly reignited interest in her celebrity. She received hundreds of fan letters from around the world after the spread and seemed determined to put together her autobiography. But if she ever finished the book, it was never published. Maybe she decided that no one would be interested in the full story of her life. And maybe they weren't. Not by then. All the world had ever seemed interested in was the way she looked, whether it was on the dance floor, in the spotlight, or as a centerfold. They didn't want to know about the woman behind the name. 
So instead, she faded into obscurity, granting the rare interview when people put in the effort to track her down, but otherwise letting herself be forgotten. When she died in 2006 at the age of 70, a flurry of obituaries appeared in newspapers lamenting the loss of one of the earliest adult film stars. They listed her accomplishments, like smart Alec, like her famous friends, like her brushes with the law. But I don't think anyone truly understood Juanita. Yes, she was famous for the way she moved, for her beauty, for the headlines she made, but it feels more fitting to remember her for what she was, a woman who experienced an incredibly traumatic childhood, teenage years that were, if it's possible, even worse, and faced down persecution when she finally took control of her destiny. There's only one word I can think of to describe a person like that, survivor. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Juanita Slusher, amongst the many sources we used, we found Candy Barr, the small-town Texas runaway who became a darling of the mob and the queen of Las Vegas burlesque by Ted Schwartz and Marty Rustam, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen. Edited by Abigail Cannon. Fact-checked by Haley Milliken. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.